You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS or the Heavyweight Tungsten Super Shot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes so if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot visit federalpremium.com and while you're there don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs tons of great content Welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we're going to be chatting with returning guest Tom Peplinski. Uh, Tom has been on several times uh, to talk about whitetails. He's a whitetail nut, just like uh, a lot of us are. But on this episode, we're going to be talking about habitat improvement projects, uh, food plot projects that he's doing on his farm, and it's all because they took bedding out of a farm that neighbors his property. So now there's more food around, but not as much cover. So he's taken it upon himself to change his property, to get more bedding, to get more cover. Uh, I think he's putting in some CRP and he's taking out food and putting cover in. And he's going to talk about that project today. And then we catch up and we BS a little bit about some other things. But the, the main story with this podcast is the hard work that he's putting in into the spring to hopefully get results and connect with a shooter buck in the fall. So that's what this episode is about. But before we get into today's episode, I have to remind everybody to please subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. Please subscribe or go to the uh, go to the website, uh, iowasportsman.com. Take a look at the the blogs. Not only do we have the magazine, get the get the subscription to the Iowa Sportsman Magazine. Get the subscription to the Iowa Sportsman podcast and visit the website iowasportsman.com and that's a trifecta. All right, tons of great content all about the state of Iowa. The best part is it's, it it may come from the Iowa Sportsman, but the principles can be transferred to other states throughout the entire Midwest. So lots of great content, lots of great writers, lots of great conversations on the podcast. So uh, take some time out of your day and listen to this podcast, subscribe to it, follow the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page, and check out their website, iowasportsman.com. Let's get into today's, I guess we're going to call it a Habitat a Habitat podcast with Tom Peplinski. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Tom Peplinski. How you doing, man? Good. Good morning, Dan. How you been doing? I'm doing all right. You got a cup of coffee? Uh, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I had a big glass of orange juice this morning. Okay, not a coffee drinker. I thought that was like, <laughs> if you lived in Iowa, you had to drink coffee in the morning. Well, 
Everybody I know does, but I just never had a taste for it. So yeah. I'd more more of an orange juice or milk kind of guy. Yeah, I feel you. I, I do it just straight for survival. If I didn't have a coffee or some kind of stimulant, stimulus in the morning, I would probably just be a zombie all day long. And uh, I got it, I got stuff I got to do. So uh, I just crank myself up on some caffeine and, and hit the day like that. Yeah, back in the day, I used to drink a lot of Mountain Dew and stuff like that, but not anymore. Yeah. Now I just try to shy away from it, but yeah, yeah, I hear you. All right, so today we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk whitetails because, man, it's been a while since we've chatted last. And uh, let's see, did you find any shed antlers this year? We had actually a really good year. When I say we, um, a lot of friends and family kind of came in and out. Yeah. And we found a bunch. I, I don't even know how many, 25 maybe, which is for us, that's a lot. Because I really don't look for them. Me and you have talked about that before. Yeah. But, heck, I found, I don't know, four or five, maybe six even. Some nice ones. My wife found a half, a half of a buck that would have scored her on 170. So that was her, her biggest shed that she ever found. Wow. And I have pictures. I have pictures of that buck. Um shortly after he shed his his one half because i got a picture of him with just the other half on so that was kind of neat that's and, some, that's uh, awesome i i consider that a great year yeah yeah and i found a match set of a four-year-old right behind the house so that's pretty neat so yeah we had a we had a pretty successful shed hunt this year so it sounds to me like uh no let me ask you this for someone who didn't pay too much attention to sheds in the past now that you've found these sheds you know your wife found a a big boy and you found a really good match set behind the house does that get you more excited about what's to come or does that give you any insight into what the deer are doing on your on your properties well i don't know that it gives me any more insight because where the deer are in january and february i would argue doesn't give you a whole heck of a lot of information but yeah um, the match set is a, a buck that I have one picture of, but the picture is really blurry. I mean, to the point where you can't really even tell what it is. And now that I got that match set, it, it was, it's a pretty nice deer. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that, that would, that does get me a little bit going. So I, I had in my mind, that was not a deer that I would be thinking I would be hunting this year, but now it is. Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I, uh, I, uh, I had one lucky day and I think I talked about this on my other podcast, but, uh, I had one day where I went to the Iowa deer classic and I, you know, every year I feel like I spend less and less time there because you walk through and basically I go just to catch up with people that, uh, I haven't seen in a while. I, w- I walk through, I get my, um, my peanuts, I get my jerky. I walk through the, uh, the uh mount area you know where the the big buck alley where they they you know they do the scoring and stuff and then i just was like you know what i think i'm out of here i made it back in time to the house thinking i was going to get the kids handed to me well my wife had taken the kids to a friend's house to play and i had some free time so i headed out to the timber and, and started doing some shed hunting and i walked into this picked bean field with six sheds just I mean, placed there like somebody put them there for me to find. 
maybe someone did. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, I, I don't know, but if I was to, if I was going to pr- play a trick on somebody, that is exactly what I would have done. And I walked yeah. in and I found these six sheds in about mm, 30 minutes. It was, it was just a really good day. And total, I think I found seven sheds throughout the year. And, you know, I, I don't have the, the property to hunt or to shed hunt like I used to back in the day, man, I had thousands of acres in Southeast Iowa that I could go shed hunt. But as time went on and, and landowners changed or kids got interested in, in uh, whitetails, that number's gone down. So I'm only really, there's only a few areas that I can shed hunt these days, but it's all right. I mean, I get out and especially around here, I got some public I can, I can jump on, but, uh, let me ask you this, since you found those sheds and since you guys have had that successful season of looking for sheds, is it something you're going to continue to do every year? Well, we'll, we'll continue to do it because it's, like I said, my son will come down with his girlfriend and my daughter will come down and, you know, other friends and stuff. And then I use it as a scouting yeah. at the time for scouting. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I think I actually miss a lot of sheds because I'll go out and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm shed hunting. And within, within the first 10 minutes, I'm not shed hunting anymore. I'm, yeah. I'm scouting. So yeah. I think I missed some, so we'll keep doing it just because it's, you know, March, February, March. And it's something, it's something good to do, especially when you're scouting areas that you don't normally want scout the rest of the year. So, yeah. Did you, did you find any balloons hanging on fences that was going to, that would mess up your, uh, <laughs> mess up your hunting? No. No, but I, uh, uh, I think we'll probably talk later about, you know, different things, but I was doing some habitat improvement in that area and that yeah. ditch crossing is, yeah. is open right up again. There's deer pounding through there. So no, no more balloons, but gotcha. that area is definitely cleared out. Okay. Uh, the next question, turkey hunt. Do you turkey hunt at all? I have, and I, I didn't do it this year again. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just don't have a lot of enthusiasm for, for turkey hunting. And I know you're probably rolling your eyes, but that's just, no. I don't know. I just never got into it. No, I'm not rolling my eyes. I, I turkey hunt because I can't deer hunt. That's, I mean, if I, if turkey season and deer season were at the same time and I could only pick one, you know, for sure, I'd be picking whitetails. But I do it because I think it's a great way to introduce my kids into hunting. Uh, I, I took my kid, my two oldest kids out, uh, let's see, six and five or seven and five, and uh, they had a good time. I mean, I didn't expect to kill anything, but, you know, it was more to get them outside and enjoy nature. And then I go just to go, you know, just to be outside and keep myself from rotting in this house that, you know, we're all in right now. But, uh, yeah, I mean, turkey hunting, I, I don't, you know, I don't stare at maps all day long for turkey hunting. I don't uh, lose sleep over turkey hunting. I don't, you know, like I don't plan vacations, you know, in months in advance around turkey hunting. I, j- I do it because it's fun and I'm not really. But you know what I mean? There's there's just a complete different level of excitement for whitetails. Well, you said you turkey hunt because you can't deer hunt. Yeah. And for me, I'd argue that I'm. I'm deer hunting all year. So I guess yeah. I'd rather be doing the stuff that I right. do in preparation for deer hunting and habitat and stuff like that. Yeah. That makes to a lot me, of that's sense. more exciting. I, I get into that more. Yeah. That makes a lot so, of sense. What about fishing? Do you fish at all? Oh yeah. We have a, every year we try to rent a 
a cabin and this year we rented a cabin in northern wisconsin and i'll be up there with my dad and um, maybe my nephew and maybe my son will stop in and my daughter will stop in and then uh, locally we go and i won't mention the name of the lakes around here but (laughs) yeah yeah we go we like to uh mostly pan fish and bass fish and stuff like that right okay so you're not you're not a, a whitetail snob. You you do participate in some other activities other than whitetails. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. But hey, if someone called me a whitetail snob, I would I would I would think that would be a compliment. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You can't pick on me about saying I spend too much time <laughs> with whitetails because it. it it won't change. It won't right. change what I do. Right. Let me ask you this, um, because I am I'm seven years. Or, uh, let's see in uh, let's see April, and I'm eight years into a marriage. I just had my eighth anniversary. Um, was there a time when your wife would get frustrated about the amount of time and energy that you put into hunting whitetails? What is this a setup? No, it's not, dude. I'm telling you right now, your wife won't listen to this. My wife isn't going to listen to this. I just every year I have the same battles with my wife, right? Every year I it it gets closer to deer hunting season. She knows it, and I don't. I don't go to bars. I don't do fantasy sports. I don't have tickets to football games. I don't go out and hang like I hang with my buddies every once in a while, but it's more of a, Hey, let's go have a coffee at seven in the morning at high V. That's what I do. And then I spend all my other time with the family so that I can disappear in the fall for a while. I mean, that's what I do, but still I get a little, you know, I get a little, uh, uh, you know, or how long are you going to be gone? Well, you don't need to be gone that long to kill a deer. I'm just like, every, you know, like (laughs) every single year I I have to fight the same battles. And I feel there's a point because how how many years have you been married? Uh, 25. Don't, don't, uh, yeah. Just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Okay. so. So my, my guess is there's a point where she just stops caring about what you do right it's like okay i know i know he's gonna be hunting right i can tell you this when we had when our kids were little it was hard yeah and it was and it was hard on her a lot because at the time we had a lease and it was a couple hours away from home so when i during the whitetail season you know i'd be away and we had a we had like a little camper there and stuff so it's not like i drove back and forth um so every year i would say by middle of november that was, or even a little earlier, we kind of had, it didn't, didn't always sit so well in the house, Yeah. <laughs> but now when it's just her and I, it's not, I think sometimes it's actually kind of nice because she gets to do what she wants to do, you know, by herself some alone time and I'm doing what I want to do. But yeah, I think when the kids are little, it's hard. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm going through right now is, is all that. So, but you know, at the end of the, uh, she hasn't left me yet, and I don't think she will leave me uh, because, I mean, honestly, let's be honest, who wants to raise kids by themselves? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had a we had a kind of a blowout fight 20 years ago or something when our kids were little, and I, at one point I just said something like, you know, I would never make, make you choose to give up the one thing that you love, you know, yeah. 
more than your family and stuff. Cause that's, I'm the same way. I'm not a bar goer. Yeah. I don't go out and party. I don't do a lot of stuff. That's the one thing I do. And I, yeah. granted it's a lot of time Yeah. and a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but, and I think from that point on, she kind of understood because if you're going to make somebody choose, yeah, you know, between your marriage or something like that. And the one thing that they really love and they're passionate about, that's not really a good thing either. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. But before we, uh, before we dig this hole any deeper, we should probably talk about, uh, actually talk about what's uh, going on in the whitetail woods this time of year. And you mentioned that you, uh, that you did some habitat work this spring. Yeah. So by my house here, when I bought this farm, I was, I made the mistake and I, we probably talked about it before, but I made the mistake of counting on my neighbors to provide the bedding habitat. So I, I kind of set my farm up or I was planning on setting it up as a Western, as a Western to Eastern, um, late evening deer movement kind of pattern. So I kind of went in with the attitude that, well, there's not a lot of food in the area. There's good bedding habitat in the area. So I'm going to provide the food. And, you know, that's, that was kind of my strategy. Well, lo and behold, the, the neighbor who had the, the tall switchgrass and it was overgrown in uh, junipers, cedar trees and stuff like that. So it really provided some really good habitat. They cleared it all. So just like that overnight, the bedding habitat was gone. And so like the last year or two, even I struggled to get on deer, I think in daytime early enough because of the bedding, the bedding was so sparse. So it's kind of, it's one, it's kind of what I tell people a lot. If you're in an area where there's just tons of bedding cover and for me, I always think of like Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, the UP of Michigan. And there's actually places down in Southern Iowa too, where there's very little food. Yeah. And it's just bedding habitat everywhere. Yeah. You don't need to provide more bedding habitat if that's the kind of area you're in because they already have enough bedding habitat and you doing some hinge cutting or something isn't really going to make it all, all that better for them. So if you provide a good food source or multiple food sources, then you're providing what's least available for the deer and that gives you good deer hunting. If you're in an area where there's nothing but food, and you provide them with bedding habitat, then you're providing the deer with something that they need. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. So by the house here, I was thinking I had the bedding habitat that I needed and I was going to provide the food and overnight the bedding habitat disappeared. So now, and that's kind of a mistake. That was me being greedy. That was me saying, well, the least amount of effort is to leave my farm the way it is and provide some food and I'll have some good deer hunting. So now I'm, I'm not playing the, the, the lazy or greedy path and I'm going to try and convert what ground I can convert. Um, that's not in row crops into great bedding habitat. So that's a few acres of switch grass and a bunch of edges that were what I call hard edges. It went from row crop straight to timber. Yeah. So you have a hard edge. Yep. So I'm trying to, I'm pl- trying to plant switch grass along those edges and pockets of pines along those edges and doing some hinge cutting along those edges to get that to be more of a soft edge. I got about a two and a half or three acre bottom that was reeds canary. 
So I had a two-year process to remove the reeds canary because it's you just can't spray it one time with glyphosate. It just keeps coming back. So I had about a two-year process of spraying it, letting it green up, and spraying it, and letting it green up, and then disking it, and spraying it. And you just you have to just keep repeating this. And so this year is the year that that'll be going into switchgrass with pockets of dogwood and hazelnut and pines. So I've been this this spring has been a very busy year at the home farm. Yeah. So you, you basically you identified that there was bedding habitat on your neighbor's farm that was being destroyed, and you said to yourself, "Man, if I want to continue to have deer moving through here, I now have to take." some of my uh, food out and put some bedding in. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm to the point now where food is the abundant, is the abundant habitat around here where before it was cover. Right. um, Bedding cover. So now I'm going the other way. Okay. And yeah, so now I'm just, I'm just creating a ton of bedding habitat, a ton of soft edges and uh, pockets of pine, um, cedar thickets and trying to, when I'm doing this, I'm trying to make it as natural as I can. You know, I'm not planting five acres of row pines, you know, I'm, I'm doing pockets and trying to emulate what nature would do. And in the type of switchgrass I got grows about six feet, five, six, seven feet. It's got a pretty good stem on it. So it'll stay up, you know, through winter. And yeah, so, and switchgrass is a great, is a good is a good cover to use as long as you can have some pockets of like dogwood or something like that that breaks it up because 20 acres of straight switchgrass isn't really not the greatest yeah. habitat in the world but what I'm doing is I'm making edges and pockets and and that'll provide a good base cover for me plus it's a year you know this this year it'll get four feet tall so in the first year I'll have some pretty good bedding from that switchgrass already. Uh, and then as the temperatures get colder and the, maybe the, the colder temperatures uh, uh, creep in, you got some good thermal covers with with that dogwood and those cedars. Yeah, the dogwood provides some pretty good base, um, some pretty good uh, broadleaf and woody browse, which oh. deer need yeah. in their bedding. You know, you don't have a lot of people I see online and stuff that are planting, you know, trails and little clover plants patches and they're putting winter rye back in their bedding and stuff and i i my opinion is you really don't want to do that you really don't want to provide a really good food source in their bedding area simply because you don't want them staying in their bedding area all day long and then not having to leave yeah for any reason because there's so much food so what i try to do is provide just daytime browse woody type browse which the hazelnut the dogwood should take care of that yeah and i'm sure there's some there's some pockets of briars and, and other broad leaves and stuff that I'll leave that I'm not, you know, I'm just not touching. And I did, I did do some hinge cutting. Um, there was some box elder in pockets. So in areas where I could provide some daytime browse with the box elder, I did that. There was areas where there was honey locust in that hedge apple and that stuff. I, I either dropped and treated the stump or I um, just basil treated the, tree and, and killed the tree because i didn't i just don't like those honey locusts they don't all they do is put tires and are uh, holes in my tires and my tractor <laughs> and stuff and i just got no use for them so yeah i was able to open up the canopy by killing some of those trees and it's it's been an all-out effort here on this on this 80 acres yeah 
Well, uh, have you seen a result, uh, any, any positive results thus far? Well, this is the, this is the spring that I'm going all in on it. So oh, I, I guess gotcha. no. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I planted the trees this year. I planted the, the shrubs this year. The switch grass is going in this year. Uh, last year I had a good hunt where I shot my buck was on this farm, but I just noticed that I did everything. It was kind of an experiment, experimental year. I did a lot of observation sits as we talked about in the past. Yep. But I, the other thing I did is there's like, there's like a main draw that goes through my farm with a couple of fingers. And I just said, well, I'm just not going to go in there at all. And I'm going to see if I can keep deer in those draws with that reeds canary and not a lot of daytime browse because it's a lot of that honey locust and stuff. And the answer was really kind of no. I mean, there was some deer that I would see in the evening come out of there. Yeah. So they, they were obviously bedded in there, but by and large, they weren't. And so the majority of the deer that I think were coming onto my property were getting here too late because they were bedded way too far away. Yeah. So it, it's funny you say that. I can remember a time where I was sitting in a tree stand. And I, it was kind of an observation tree stand where I was in a draw, but I could see into the neighbor's CRP field. And I, I noticed some movement, and there was a, a big mature buck. And he was in this little area where there was these uh, bushes, the woody brows. There was some cedars for cover. There was a CRP. It was mixed in with CRP. And I watched him, and I, I sat all day. Because I I didn't want to, I was thinking maybe this deer will walk by. He was probably about 150 yards away. And all this buck did was bed, stand up, walk over to, walk over to this bush, eat on this bush, stretch his legs, shake his head. And then he walked back to maybe another bush, munch for a little bit, and then he'd go back to his bed. And then he'd stand up about two hours later and and then go over to that bush, chew on that bush, make this little lap. And I'm, when I mean lap, I mean the size of your living room. Like that's how, that's how small that his movement was. And then he bed was bedded down. And then as I, in the last time I saw him, he was in a bed just sitting there at last light. So that kind of just tells me that there's certain times a year where these deer are not moving at all if they don't need to right there's there's no bed to food pattern if the bedding or if the cover is so good and they have food in there too they don't need to go to a food plot or to an ag field or or to an acorn tree if they have everything they need right there yeah correct absolutely and and then now just amplify that one step further so you're the you're the nut that likes putting food plots in and all this kind of stuff like I used to be and and you now now you give that same deer a like a little clover plot or something right back in his bedding area and then you wonder why the deer are nocturnal well they're not nocturnal you just gave them everything they needed right in their bedroom yeah yeah so yeah absolutely and that's that's what I didn't have on this farm now my other farm in Decatur County that has the best of everything that's got bedding cover it's got it's got transition plots in it I have destination plots in it. There's egg around the area, so it's got it's got everything. Yeah. On top of I have some of the best bedding habitat in the area because I'm surrounded by cow pasture and mature timber. So right, right. Let me that ask... farm that farm already had it going for it, but this is the farm I wanted to spend some time on. 
Yeah, let me ask you this, and this is just a random question. You put all this work in, and you have good food, you have good habitat. Do you have uh, neighbors who hunt right on your fence line? Yes. Yeah, I do. Okay. And and are are they are they being successful off of are they reaping the rewards off of your hard work? Um, they might. Yeah. You know, I I, I'm assuming they probably would eventually. Yeah. Um, but I don't I I know that and there's nothing you know, I would tell guys out there that don't get all wound up and tied in a knot because there's somebody hunting your fence line or whatever yeah because you can't do nothing about it so don't worry about it and if one of my neighbors shoots a a nice buck that that i feel is bedded on my property or whatever you know hey whatever it's just it's just how it is that that doesn't bother me and the whole point of that question was to ask you this question have you ever made any habitat changes or planted a food plot maybe closer to the center of your property to keep deer from uh, jumping onto the next property? Um, so like on my farm right now, I'm doing, I'm doing the habitat planning and fence jumps and ditch crossings and stuff where it'll, where I can take advantage of it and not necessarily the neighbors. Right. Um, food, food. I don't on a small property like this. I don't, I will, I won't typically put it in the middle because I don't, that's where the bedding habitat is going to be, so the food will be on the edges. But there's way I, there's ways I can put food on the edges on this property and still keep it away from neighboring hunters. I got you. So I'm directing so I'm directing the the bed to feed type pattern. Yeah. Away away from where my neighbor's tree stand is. Put it that way. So you, it's something you're actually actively thinking about. Well, yes, um, not. Not because I'm saying, oh, I, I, you know, I, I want to make sure my neighbor doesn't get a deer. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing right. it because I'm not going to go up, crawl up in a tree on my side of the fence, and then the sun comes up, and I'm hunting 15 yards away from a neighbor. Right. So, be, so because of that, I'm, I'm planning out my ambush sites ahead of time before I do the habitat improvements so that my habitat improvements are, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, customized to where I want to hunt the deer. So I don't, that, that's the other thing me and you have talked about before. I don't just do a bunch of stuff and then how the deer react to it. Now I, now I got to figure out how to set up and put a blind in or hang a tree stand. I do the other way. I I say, where do I want to ambush the deer? Yeah. Where's my best access? This is a really good tree. How can I make the deer come past here when I have a south wind, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's take the tractor and make a better ditch crossing. Let's drop a honey locust over this ditch crossing so they use mine and let's take the fence down a little bit here so there's a fence jump and let's add a transition plot and a mock scrape and so I, i'm planning all this stuff out ahead before i even do the the habitat type stuff yeah so, you what I'm saying? so you're putting yourself in control of their movement yeah i'm trying i'm trying yeah. to and it's not 100 percent. it's not yeah. a, it's not you know 100 percent. but if you can get it right 50 percent of the time it, hey. it makes for some pretty good hunting yeah that increases your odds so yeah all right other than other than what you've already talked about do you have any other plans uh during this you know the spring or summer months that's gonna get you more prepared for the whether that's habitat or food plot work for the fall well yeah so i I already have half of my what i would say grain crops 
my grain food plots, half of those are in already. I did them. I did about four acres, I think on Monday <clears throat> and now my farm in Decatur County. Um, that's on a lease that I have. And then on my farm in Decatur County, I have, I'm thinking about three and a half acres of corn and beans I'll be putting in, um, probably this weekend coming up. Okay. And then, uh, later in the year, um, I'll be putting my fall pots in. That'll be like late August, mid to late August. And now I got all these trees that I planted. So hopefully it's not a drought year, but if it is a drought year, I'll be watering trees all summer long. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to lose 700 trees and shrubs. What did you plant? So, well, I planted um, Norway spruce and white pine. I actually wanted red pine um, just because they're, they grow faster. And a lot of those red pine that I had planned on putting in was more for screening cover, not necessarily for, for uh, bedding habitat, but more for a screen. <clears throat> but the DNR, because of the COVID-19, uh, contacted me and said they didn't dig the red pine this year, so they weren't available. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of that was for screening cover, and then I also put in the pockets of Norway spruce um, mixed in with the white pine in pockets. Um and creating edge cover. And then if you can just imagine, um, well, you know, like when you have an egg field, so I would, I consider that like flat. Yeah. Cause in the fall, in the fall, it's going to be, you know, combine corn or combine beans or alfalfa. And so you get to this edge where the timber is. So at the beginning of the podcast, I talk about these hard edges where you got that stuff coming up right up to mature timber. And that's, that's probably the least effective habitat so what i try to do all over in my bottom ground is create hundreds and hundreds of yards of edge cover so i'm taking um row crop to switch grass to dogwood and and hazelnut to pines but i'm not doing that like 300 yards long i'm doing it in short 20 yard pockets so like you said you watch this buck and he had this this buck was in CRP and he had some daytime brow and he had a couple cedars there. I'm trying to create these little 20 yard by 20 yard pockets over, you know, three acres. I'm trying to create as many of those pockets as I can. <clears throat> so the base cover is the switchgrass, but it's not three acres of switchgrass. It's three acres of a base cover switchgrass, but then switchgrass going to dogwood and hazelnut with some pines kind of on an island. And then I go another 60, 70 yards and I do it again. You see what I'm saying? So I create yeah. all these pockets where dull family groups can bed, where bucks can bed. <clears throat> and the more you can do that, excuse me, <clears throat> the more you can do that, the more deer you can have um, bedding on your farm. So Okay. So it, it almost sounds like you're you're trying to keep them there and slow them down in their movement. Cause you know, like I've seen a deer walk through a, uh, on the edge of a field and they, th there's nothing really them for there to them to stop on. Right. Except maybe if there's a scrape, but if they're, if they're walking a field edge or let's say some kind of edge there and there's nothing for them to stop, they just kind of keep going. It sounds like what you're doing is you're creating these places that are slowing them down and keeping their movement in in a certain area and slowing them down. Is that, is that accurate? Um, I don't know. 
I don't know if I'd use the term slowing them down. I'm just trying to create, I'm just trying to create what, what deer like the most. And that's the, yeah. whether it's a pine thicket, deer don't like, you know, 10 acres of roll pines. Yeah. They might like them when they're three years old, but once they're mature, it's a, it's a biological desert. You've heard that term before. Right. Same with switchgrass. Switchgrass is awesome, but not 40 acres of it because there's no daytime browse. So a deer, unless there's heavy, heavy pressure, hunting pressure, a deer's just not going to go and lay out in six-foot-tall switchgrass because there's no food, there's no water, there's no good reason for them to be there. Right. Same with these hard edges. You know, does, I, I believe doe family groups like to bed close to food. Yeah. But if the food source is a lush alfalfa field and you come up to this hard edge where it's nothing but 40 and 50-foot-tall honey locusts and uh, shake bark hickory, they're not going to bed in that open cover because there is really, there really is no cover. So now they're going to go back in the timber, 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards, whatever it takes to find good bedding cover. And what you've now done is you've eliminated areas where bucks can bed because bucks don't want to bed with doe family groups. Right. So if you can plan your doe bedding right next to the food source, which is where they want to be anyways, now you've created a, a buffer zone or, or space. So now your land can accept some bucks to bet on it. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do here. So I planned out my food plots in ways where I can keep the doe family groups closer to my food. And then I'm having um, bedding, which hopefully bucks will take over farther away from food. But it is kind of hard in this Southern Iowa area area. Um, especially now that that land got cleared west of me because there's a lot of food. Um, so my my whole goal with creating these pockets and this good bedding cover down here is have some doe family groups bed on my property, and, and I'm sure I'm sure I'll have uh, one or two nice bucks every year. Okay. On my property, it, it, it's not big enough. It's not big enough to have dozens and dozens of deer, but yeah. it'll have it'll have enough for me to hunt. Do you plant food plot? Do you plant anything specifically for screening yourself walking into a food plot or a tree stand? Um, as far as a food plot blend or anything, I don't because it's, I mean, I have, and I know guys plant like sorghum and stuff like that. Basically I'll, a screen or, or a yeah, wall. And, yeah. Yep. Yep. And I'll get creative sometimes with, uh, how I plant my grain plots like corn and stuff. But I think, I think, uh, two things. First, um, if you want something that's fast, it would be switchgrass cause you can get switchgrass that grows six feet tall or even, or even like your big blue stem and stuff grows even taller than that. And that's permanent. So you're not doing it every year. And then the other thing is a more long-term permanent screen would be a row of, like Norway spruce or cedars or something like that yeah. is more permanent. So that's, that's what I've chosen to do because I don't want to have to go back and, and plant like this sorghum and stuff every single year. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not necessarily, you're not making that decision based off of your access routes. Um, no, not here. Okay. No, not here. My access here is, is down a fence line and through a cow pasture. Okay. By, by and large, that, that's my two access points. Okay. All right. All right. So other than, other than that, anything else you got going on, uh, as far as habitat work on your farms? 
No, not habitat work, but I, I will say uh, this year, every, every year I like to go to all my tree stands, every single year. And if it's a hang-on stand, I, I loosen them up and I loosen up the steps going up. I don't use the screwing steps anymore, but I um, like the climbing sticks or whatever. Yeah. And then I do all, all the shooting lanes. Yep. And I've kind of neglected that over the years, or I've, I've done the ones that I've hunted more. And this, this year I've made a concerted effort and I probably have 25 stands, ladder stands and hang on stands. And I've, I've gotten to every one this year, except for two. I got yeah. two left. Yeah. So I gotcha. I would say if, I would say if you're listening, uh, listening and you got private land or farms where you have stands hung, you know, get in there. A couple of the stands were so grown in, I had to actually cut the straps. Yeah. So now I'll have to, I'll have to rig them up different, but. Yeah, that's a good point. I've, I have a couple stands. Well, this year I took one down after I shot my buck, but last, uh, I've, I've had a, a tree stand in a tree. It's a hang on for three years. And the first hunt every year, I lo- I loosen it up when I'm on my way up. You know, I'm buckled into the tree and uh, I loosen the the strap and then tighten it back up. But I think this year I actually need to just straight up replace the straps on that tree. So, or maybe even when I go and do some prep, take it down, take the the tree stand down, and then you know replace the re- you know take it all down, replace all the straps, then put it right back up again. Yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these hang-ons too that are like foldable. They'll have the cables. They'll have the cables between like the back frame and the yep. platform. You yep. know, <clears throat> and I would suggest everybody look at those cables. And if they seem like they're starting to rust really bad around the ends, you might want to throw that stand away or or get the cable replaced or something. I where did I see it? I saw it maybe on Facebook or something where a guy was on a stand this year and that cable. Oh yeah, it was rusted, but you know, but it looks good and it snapped. Well, if that cable snaps, one, if you're not wearing a harness, there's no way you're going to grab anything quick enough. And even if you are wearing a harness, that's still going to hurt. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's something that people need to be doing every single time. And people fall out of tree stands for the dumbest reasons every year. But when you have control of something like a tree stand right i i feel like a guy a guy should be checking them every single year whether it's a a ladder stand that's been there for 20 years or a or a hang on that you you know maybe you move around if you're leaving it outside you definitely need oh if you use it period you should be checking it you know yeah and that's i guess that was my point yeah so there's a hunting there's a hunting reason to do it which is you get up in there make sure it's not squeaking make sure that all the limbs are cleared out you know, make sure your shooting lanes are open, but there's a, there's probably a better reason. And that's to make sure that the stand is still safe. Cause you don't want to be. And I, I get your idea of the first time in you check it, but if your first time in is in the morning hunt and it's, yeah. and it's pitch black and stuff, that's not necessarily the the best way to do it either. So yeah, spring right. is a good time to do it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Cool. Well, uh, Anything else you got going on this year that uh, in the whitetail woods on the properties that you hunt that uh, you're excited about? Uh, no, I mean, just this year I'm, I'm going all in on the home farm. What I, what I call the home farm. And last year uh, on my website, I kept actually a daily, a daily blog 
of my hunts every single day and I really hunted my home farm hard. And when I say that it was a lot of observation sits. So it's not like I was going to going in and hunting those draws, um, but I was just trying to learn it really well. And now I have a really good solid plan and I'm pouring a lot of time and energy and resources into it. And I really think I'm thinking about three, four years from now, it's going to, that's when it, it's really going to take off. But this first year, I mean, if you would ask me that question, you asked a little earlier, you know, did I see any results? You know, I think this time next year, the answer is going to be yes, because some of, some of the stuff that I'm doing is the year one, year yeah. one return. So, okay. All right. So let's see here. You write it, you write, um, let's see, uh, articles. Is it every, every month you have a, a white tails 365 article in the Iowa sportsman magazine? every month okay so briefly talk about what that uh what that uh, section of the magazine is about so it's all whitetails and it's it i think it kind of specializes in habitat stuff so food plots uh switchgrass habitat techniques where to plant your food plots what to plant in your food plots um it's a lot of uh, where, where do you put your hinge cuts? Why do you locate a water hole where you locate a water hole? It's, it's probably 70% that type of stuff. Okay. And then the other 30% is more, you know, techniques, how to hunt, um, you know, when to call the phases of the rut, that, that type of stuff. Okay. And I try and time it. I try and time it. So when the article is released, let's say, so if it's a June article, I try to make it. So if you're reading that article in June, it's stuff that you can be doing in June. That's yeah. that's how I try to time it. Yeah. Make and then I would, I would say, possible. yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't want to be having guys reading an article in January about, you know, what to, what to plant in their food plots in August because right. they might forget or whatever. So I try to time it that way. And then if there's hunters out there that have questions either about what I've read or stuff they've seen online they're always welcome to send in a question. So every once in a while, I'll do a, a whole article or even back-to-back articles on questions that people have that they've sent in to me. And that's sometimes that can be some of the better articles, I think, because you're you're actually hitting what people are, are thinking. So because I don't I can't read people's minds. So sometimes it's good to get that feedback. Yeah. So cool. Well, hopefully all this work pays off for you in the long run, and I have a, I have a good feeling it, it will, just like you, you know, just like you said. But, Tom, as always, man, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for sharing some insight with us, and uh, good luck on your fishing trips this uh, spring and summer, and we'll talk to you uh, probably later this, uh, later this summer to touch base again before the whitetail season kicks off for us. That sounds good, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity. I always like doing these.